The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. scripture reading this evening is from the book of Philippians chapter 2, beginning at verse 5, that text that is such a beautiful uh, theology of the incarnation telling us uh, about what it was for Jesus to come into our world. And we pick up the account, the apostle has urged the Philippians to have unity of heart and mind, and he's going to use the example of Christ. But let's begin with verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his holy word. The circumstances are all so very familiar The tax decree goes out from Caesar Augustus, and even the far-flung territories of Judea are not exempt from its force. Mary and Joseph have to make the 80-mile journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem so that Joseph can register, and all this when it is almost time for Mary to give birth. We tend to romanticize the circumstances of Christ's birth. We sit in our conditioned sanctuaries, in our comfortable seats and homes, and we can't help but to imagine a cleanly swept barn with fresh-smelling hay when it was probably a very unsanitary, cave-like building or place. And the best place we know that Mary could find to place the baby when he was born was in a feed trough. It's right that we should sing hymns such as Infant Holy, Infant Lowly. What do we learn from the humble circumstances of Christ's birth and from this wonderful description, this theology of Jesus' coming that we find in Philippians chapter 2? I'd like us to see two points. The first is the amazing love and condescension of our God. We find here in verse 7, that Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. Verse 6, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Here is the Lord Jesus Christ willingly taking upon our humanity, and so his glory was veiled. 
God the Father loved us and sent his Son. God the Son loved us and came to save us. To condescend means to be graciously willing to do something regarded as beneath one's dignity. Just think if a president would say to one of his secret servant agents, here, let me shine your shoes for you. I don't think that's happened, but if you were standing around and you saw that, you would probably think, oh, that's beneath the president's dignity to do that. That's beneath the stature of his office. Whether or not that's true, I don't know. But we're told here in Philippians 2 that that's the way Jesus Christ acted for our sake, for our salvation, that we might be forgiven, given salvation and brought into a right relationship to God through his mighty work. Even though he was so high, being in very nature God, it says, he made himself nothing, as it were, by becoming a man, by taking on human flesh. And then we read in our text that after becoming a man, he continued in this pathway of lowly service and sacrifice. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross, a cross which I'm sure you know was a terrible form of execution. There's very little literature in the secular Roman ancient Roman world about the cross because it was shameful even to write about it, a cross on which Jesus willingly bore our sins. The humility of Jesus Christ in coming and the circumstances of his birth show us something of God's great love for us, his mercy to us in Jesus Christ. We cannot begin to grasp the far-reaching scope of God stooping to take on human flesh. It's really, it's really beyond our thinking. But these humble circumstances, the poverty, the manger, the lowliness, these help us in some way to comprehend the coming of the Son of God. They picture the incredible step Jesus Christ took from heavenly glory to come to this earth He wasn't born in Rome, the center of the empire. He wasn't born in a palace. He was born in peasant surroundings. What a profound way for God to tell us and to show us that he loves us. What a way for him to identify with us in our humanity. On the outskirts of Cairo, Egypt, there are people who live in the garbage dumps, Some have grown up there. They've spent all their lives there. It is all they've known. They live on the refuse of society. Could any one of us imagine going there to live, to dwell in such a setting as that? It's hard to conceive, isn't it? And yet, the difference between them and us is nothing. They are humans like we are. The circumstances are like a millimeter difference in terms of their lives compared to the mile of Jesus becoming man and dwelling among us. Think of it, the one by whom all things were made being born as a baby. We just had an opportunity to spend a week with our son and their newest uh, grandchild, our newest grandchild, their son, and 
looking at little Michael and he's flailing his arms around and poking himself in the eye, just trying to, trying to, his brain, you know, all the time working at this. When the infant Jesus held his tiny fist before his eyes when he was two weeks old and gazed at it in some way and his brain was developing as all babies learn to develop, he wasn't pretending. He really did submit himself to the human condition, the human process of learning and developing, even though at the same time he was the Son of God. What deep mystery. He dwelt among us, and he did so out of his amazing love. One commentator put it this way, When he was born, God the Son placed the exercise of his all-powerfulness and all-presence and all knowingness under the direction of God the Father. He did not give up those attributes, but he submitted their exercise in his life to the Father's discretion. Though he was sinless, he had a real body, mind, and emotions complete with their inherent human weaknesses. Isn't that an interesting way to think about that? What condescension, in the words of the familiar carol, Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel. God's love and condescension in sending his son. But secondly, notice the humble circumstances of Christ's birth also point us to the upside-down manner in which God saves sinners like you and me. Philippians 2, verse 8 says, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death, on a cross. And it goes on to speak about, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place. He raised him from the dead. He ascended to the Father's right hand. Think of it. The fact that Jesus Christ had to become a man should startle us with how serious our problem is. Listen how our desperate condition is described in the beginning of the book of Ephesians chapter 2. Paul there writes, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. It's a stark picture the apostle paints as we see the problem of our sinfulness. It's not a superficial problem. It's not something minor. It's, it's, no, it's not uh, a small thing. You, you might think, well, couldn't, couldn't God have restored us to himself and to fellowship with himself in some less uh, dramatic, strange way, we might say, than sending Jesus to die. Couldn't he have given us his law and told us to be good and hopefully grade us on the curve, at least? Wouldn't that work? Or what about reincarnation? We hear about that, sending us back and just keep sending us back till finally we get it right. Wouldn't that seem to make sense? Or how about just letting us somehow pay for our sins with with the best deeds we can muster and philanthropic giving and those kind of things? Wouldn't that be enough? 
No, scriptures are clear. Any other way of salvation would be like trying to empty the Pacific Ocean with a little child's bucket. Jesus Christ had to be born of the Virgin. He had to become one of us to bear our sins as the God-man, to bear our sins by becoming obedient even to death on the cross. What an upside-down manner of saving sinners. It's not the way the world would ever dream it would be done. Christ's astounding humbling of himself teaches us that we cannot save ourselves. Our only hope is to trust in Jesus Christ, to humble ourselves, to realize that we don't have it in us, and we must cast ourselves upon him to give us salvation through him. Do you realize that there was another so-called Savior alive when Jesus Christ was born? Caesar Augustus was the first Caesar to be given that name Augustus officially by the Roman Senate. It meant holy or revered. And up to that time, that title had been reserved exclusively for the gods. But this man apparently considered himself a god. In fact, one inscription has been found that refers to him as Savior of the whole world. Well, how did Caesar save the world? In, as we might guess, in a worldly way. He brought his Pax Romana, his Roman peace, with an iron fist, the power of the kingdoms of this world. And that's the way worldly power always works. But how different is God's way of conquering our hearts How radically different is the way that he establishes his gracious rule, his gracious kingly reign in our hearts, that his kingdom would come within us. Jesus comes as a lowly infant born to peasants. He lives a humble life, but it is a life as never before witnessed on this earth, never before and never again. He teaches words of life we know like no one had ever taught before. He performs merciful deeds of miraculous power and compassion which give a glimpse of who this must be. He serves others, and he does so as a man of sorrows and acquainted with with grief, sharing in our burdens and brokenness, even to death on a cross, to die and to rise again to redeem us. Not the methods of kings, not the way of Caesar's, but the true way and God's way of raising sinners to life from hopelessness and despair to joy in God and everlasting peace. The way of God's salvation is the way of the manger, the way of the cross, our sins on the sinless one, his righteous life credited to our account by God's grace. His spirit poured out on us and, and now dwelling in those who put their trust in him so that his likeness, the evidences of his humility and love begin to be seen in his people's lives. That is God's way of salvation. The Bible's account of, of Christ's coming 
is gospel truth. It happened in history. The Bible records it. There's so much evidence for it. This is no myth. This is not a sentimental, romanticized fairy tale. This is God stooping to save sinners through the giving of his Son. And so I ask you as I close, where do you stand in relationship to this gracious Savior, the one who came in lowliness? Maybe I should ask it this way. What is stopping you from responding to his call to believe in him, to submit to his kingdom in your life and his call to turn to him? He calls us to come to him in our brokenness and in our sin, to call upon him with a genuine sense of our need, that you realize that you cannot rescue yourself and to rest instead in what he has done. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, he says, and I will give you rest. To entrust your soul to him and to look to him for cleansing and new life. Our passage tells us that this Jesus who came in such lowliness is now highly exalted. And he's been given the name above all name, the name of Lord. And one day he will come again and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, and every knee will bow. And my prayer for you is that you will bow before him now in loving devotion while it is yet the day of salvation so that there will be no condemnation on that day when he comes as the King of kings and as the Lord of lords. Let us pray. Father, we thank you. Thank you for this wondrous story And the fact that this story is true, thank you for sending your son. May we turn to him with all our heart by the grace that you give. In his name we pray. Amen.